invite you to turn with me in your scriptures to the book of 2 Kings. Uh, the selected verses beginning in chapter 9 is what we'll be walking through uh, this morning. I just would like to say on Pastor Appreciation Day, thank you so much for your continued uh, faithfulness to the Lord and uh, to myself and Pastor Dave, our families. You have been very generous to us over the years. Uh, we do count it a joy and a privilege to walk alongside of you, and we pray the Lord's continued blessing and, and bearing fruit in and through uh, our lives together. So thank you so much uh, for your generosity to us. Now to Second Kings chapters 9 and 10, uh, these chapters in Second Kings, they can make us a little bit uncomfortable, and they probably should. These chapters are saturated with violent bloodshed with vengeance, with deception, with death at the hands of Jehu, who's known as a madman, who becomes king. And the Bible says that Jehu is right in all that he does in these chapters. Now, in order to preserve God's remnant people, those faithful to him, and to cleanse his land, his creation, God judges and he wars against evil in a wrathful condemnation. So, Christian, Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain, and He is also the Lion of Judah, consuming enemies, as is shown forth in a different anointed king who we see here, King Jehu. So, this morning, I just put before you that we uh, simply must submit ourselves uh, to these Scriptures as we, we wrestle the import for us today and throughout our lives together in Christ. So to that end, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word which is living and active. Open our ears, our eyes to see, soften our hearts that we might receive that which you have for us, that we might be transformed and more into the image of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Scriptures are pretty clear. They say this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The Word of God also says, you shall have no other gods before me. There is no partiality with God. He will not abide divided affection or infidelity. God is pictured as the lover who is jealous for the affection of His beloved. He's pictured as the bridegroom pledging holy fidelity to the bride and asking the same from her. These are the images that Scripture give us of who God is. And this picture as well. Vengeance belongs to God. Our God is a consuming fire. And in that consuming fire, His faithful are given up as living sacrifices who then ascend to His presence as a pleasing aroma while that consuming fire turns wicked and adulterous into a stench destroyed in His just wrath. I mean, what kind of a judge would we want of our God, but one who is both merciful and just? Or what lover, but one who is a holy jealousy, unwilling to abide in fidelity, and yet is quick to forgive? renew, to restore whatever is broken. This sets the table for us as we enter chapters 9 and 10. Elisha enters the scene once again at the beginning of chapter 9. 
and he's God's prophet of doom to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Elisha's actions here are setting in motion the axe that will chop down the tree of King Ahab's lineage. And he also lays at, at the root of Israel as a nation that same axe. So what's been happening is the wheat of God's faithful people continues to grow up amongst the weeds in the northern kingdom of Israel. And now is a time for a white-hot harvest, a harvest that is ripe for the picking because judgment is come. Chapter 9, the first three verses read this way. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand. Go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimchi. And go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take this flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Since the northern ten tribes divorced themselves from the southern ten tribes centuries or decades before this section here, the northern kingdom of Israel, their kings have continued to lead the bride of Yahweh into one adulterous relationship after another. There have been three dynasties in the northern kingdom. Two of them have been wiped out completely, and now the third, the dynasty of Omri or Ahab, stands, but they stand condemned. The axe is at the root of the tree. What's interesting is that no Israelite king recorded in the Bible was ever anointed by God's prophet to be king except for Jehu. He is the only anointed one in the north. And the job description for King Jehu is in verse 7, where it says this, And you, Jehu, shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Again, what kind of lover would we desire of God? What kind of judge would we demand of one who claims to be God? As was promised to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, Jehu will be anointed and will be God's instrument of wrath against Ahab and all of his prophets. Remember before Elisha, there was Elijah, and God said that uh, there will be a king, in, a king in Syria that will come and, and destroy Israel. But there will also be a king anointed, a Jehu, who will come and wreak havoc on God's people in Israel as well. All who were aligned to Ahab will be destroyed. Back to chapter 9, verse 11. We're skipping ahead a little bit, but verse 11 reads this way. This is after the prophet had gone and anointed in the inner room there. When Jehu came out to his servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And they said to him, you know, he said to them, You know this fellow and his talk. And he goes on to tell them that he has been anointed as king. The prophet here is identified as a madman, crazy man, right? A madman. And we'll keep in mind that this is madness. This is what's perceived as madness that possessed this prophet will now possess Jehu as he's anointed king of Israel. Verse 13, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. So here, in the same way that Saul was anointed king 
and later recognized by the people. In the same way that David, years before he ascended the throne, was anointed king and then later on recognized as king. The same thing happens to Jehu. He's anointed and later, not much later, he's recognized by the people as king. In the same way, Jesus was anointed king at his baptism, the Holy Spirit coming down. He's anointed by the Spirit. But he's not recognized as king fully until he enters Jerusalem in that triumphal entry. At that situation, as in here, what happens is the people then disrobe themselves. They take their identity and they lay it on the ground before the king who is then to walk over that. In this sense, people are giving their lives in complete and utter submission to the one who tramples their garments, who is king. They place themselves under the feet of their anointed king. Jehu is king, they say. Jehu is anointed king, the anointed one of the north, and anointed one, which means Messiah. That's what anointed one means. And therefore, Jehu is not only like King Saul or King David as anointed ones, but he points forward to the anointed one who is Jesus. Jehu is not an exact replica of Jesus, but he does reveal something of who Jesus is. And in Jehu, we see Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the lion is in full roar. Now, the main text will come at the end of chapter 10, but there's a lot of Jehu's story that I need to try to summarize, and I'm going to try and do it briefly here. So buckle in. A lot of Scripture is going to be covered here briefly. We'll get to those final acts of vengeance against the line of Ahab, how he cleanses the reign of Israel. So we're asking, though, as we get to this part, Jehu, who is this madman king? Who is this forerunner to Jesus Christ? In short, the Bible records seven acts of Jehu in striking down the line of King Ahab. There are seven acts that is recorded for us in which Jehu is striking down the kingdom of Ahab. So he begins by striking down Ahab's son, whose name is Joram or Jehoram. What we would see if we were to read chapter 9 is that Jehu is driving his chariot furiously, our texts probably say. You know what that word furious means? We talked about it in Sunday school. He drives like a madman, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You got a 16-year-old in your house? He drives like a madman, right? So this is the thing. You see, the madness of the prophet is now passed on to the king. There's a madness about him. And what he does is he goes to Jezreel, and as he's approaching the city, the king, Joram, sends out two messengers, one at a time. The first messenger comes out, is it peace? Are we winning the war? And Jehu says, what peace is there as long as your king lives? Get behind me. And the messenger falls in line. Same conversation and same action happens with the second messenger. And finally, King Joram goes out to meet Jehu and asks again, is it peace? And Jehu says, as long as you walk in the ways of your mother Jezebel, how can there be peace? And he shoots King Jehoram through the heart. The first act in cleansing of the line of Ahab, the head or the son, the king, Joram, falls. Jehu's second act happens in the same place as Jehu kills Ahaziah. Bear with me here. 
Ahaziah is the king of Judah, that southern kingdom. But this Ahaziah is nephew to King Joram. There's a, a, a connection there, a familial relationship between north and south now. So Ahaziah, when he heard word that Joram, his uncle, was wounded, he goes up to see how his uncle is doing. But because there's a connection with the south and the north now, because the southern kingdom of Judah is becoming another Israel, because the southern kingdom is, is falling in love with the line of Ahab, the southern king Ahaziah is slain by Ju, uh, uh, Jehu as well. Judah's king is killed. Uh, Jehu is, is cleansing the land in the north and the south of Ahab's line. See, unity is a good thing. It's, a, it's a desired but when one is uniting themselves with evil or with sickness, that can lead only to death. And we're seeing that for Judah as well as Israel. Judah was uniting themselves to the northern kingdom, becoming like them as a rebellious nation, a wayward bride. And God will not put up with a faithless bride. Judah's king Ahaziah is slain, as is Israel's king Joram. See, God's word throughout uh, First Kings had promised that he will cleanse the land and his people while he's preparing the nation to fall at the hands of the Syrians. And who was the instrument of wrath to bring this about? But King Jehu. So Jezebel, the wicked queen of Ahab, is the one who falls next. She is thrown from her high place and her bloodied body is dragged away, consumed by the dogs. Neither she nor King Joram, were buried. Cursed death, the end result of a cursed life. Jehu then heads to the capital city of Samaria, and as he, he writes letters to Samaria, and the people follow his, his word, and they kill the 70 sons of Ahab. On his way to Samaria, 42 family members of the southern king Ahaziah come in the way, and he kills all of them. Jehu rids the southern kingdom of Ahab's relatives, and then in chapter 10, verse 17, it reads this way. And when Jehu came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. As I said in Sunday school, do you remember the Hallmark movie that had these stories? No, no, we didn't. Our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I just summed up, you know, two long chapters here, and there's so much violence and vengeance going on here. It's kind of hard to read, let alone to imagine. I mean, the filmmaker Quentin Tarantino, he might even blush at some of these scenes. I mean, for Peter Jackson, this is like 12 hours worth of material. And we are left in shock. But yes, this is our God. He is the crusher of the serpent. He is victorious over his foes. And this is the reality of evil and sin. It's pervasiveness. It's perverseness demanding the wrath of a just and holy God. Jehu's task is to cleanse the land of King Ahab's lineage and the effects that he had on the kingdom and Jezebel as well. So we see him kind of circling in, cutting off the head first, and then going out from there, killing off all of the uh, remnant family members, condemning, condemning all 
who would refuse to bow knee to Yahweh, who have refused to attach themselves to His prophets. But He's vindicating those who unite themselves to Him, that they might worship wholeheartedly, which is really the heart of the issue. The last section of Jehu's work deals with worship. And it seems to me he's continuing to dig deeper and deeper into the problems that have led Israel astray until he gets to the root problem here, which is uh, the heart of the people gone astray, the heart of a people turned adulterous, the heart of the people worshiping at the altar of Baal. Verse, okay, so chapter 10, verse 18. Chapter 10, verse 18 reads this way, Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live, but Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. As readers were shown the hand of the king, But those in the land don't quite understand what's happening here. But he is gathering all of those faithful to Baal into the temple or the house of the god Baal. And with cunning, he's deceiving them. He's seeking to destroy them. Now, when you read Scripture, you see that whenever the people of God are dealing with tyrants, they use deception time and again. That's what Jesus taught, said, be wise or cunning as serpents, but innocent as doves. See, it was Israel's affection for a false god, Baal, that corrupted all other aspects of their lives. So what Jehu was doing in this last scene is he is attacking the root sin in order to cleanse the whole body. Jehu's been cleansing wounds and, and ridding the body of symptoms, but now he's attacking the root disease. Verse 23 and 24 of chapter 10. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifice and burnt offerings. So they're at a threshing floor, and the wheat and chaff is being sifted here. All that's to remain in this house of Baal is the chaff. God's wrath, it is swift. Verse 24 and following, Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside, saying, The man who allows any of them whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he made an end of the offering and the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard of the officers, Go in and strike them down, let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out, went into the inner room of the house of Baal. They brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal, burned it, They demolished the pillar of Baal, demolished the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. Poetic justice, right? The house of Baal has been reduced to a toilet. God will suffer no rival. For time upon time, He suffered the expansion of Baal worship throughout His land. Jezebel and Ahab carried on slaying his servants, his prophets, forsaking his word. His bride would continue to fling herself at any passerby. And God is an idol crusher. So the pillar of Baal in that house was demolished utterly. That God's house is turned into a refuge for urine and dung. 
So there's a warning here, isn't there? For Israel who would come after these things, these events. Israel, Judah, God's people after Jehu are warned, and, and so are we, to take the name of the living God upon ourselves, to covenant with God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we in response say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Well, this is to commit oneself entirely, as the wedding vows commit oneself entirely to another until death do us part. With God, there is forgiveness and patient mercy, but there is also limit, at which point he brings swift judgment. So followers of Jesus, we, we, we enter in and we invite God, say, search me and know me, know my heart, see if there be any uncleanness in me, convict me, cleanse me, forgive me, heal me, so that like those faithful remnant in the days of Jehu and Elisha, we who see the fearful wrath of God, we are humbled and we hide ourselves in Him. We attach ourselves to the only refuge who is God's Word, His prophet, His King, who is Jesus Christ. Because what we see is throughout these stories that those who attach themselves to the prophet King Jehu are saved, but those who refuse to bow knee to Him are slain. And so in Christ, we invite the seeing eye of God to inspect, and we invite Him also to crush the idols of our hearts, the bales that compete for singular devotion to the living God. We confess, we repent, and then we rise to walk in the forgiveness that was won by Jesus Christ. Our task is to follow God's prophet king, who is Jesus Christ the one who has come to crush idols, the one who comes to renew man, the one who comes to renew his, or restore his people and to redeem all things. I mean, by the end of chapter 10 here, we are left with this in, in, in jaw-dropping awe at this violence and bloodshed, the severity of judgment over sin. And yet, what is God's commendation of Jehu at the end? He says this at the end of chapter 10, to Jehu, you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart. So while we wrestle with the violent holiness of God, we trust that He is indeed holy and just. We rest, perhaps uneasily, in the truth of His Word and His mysterious way. And then we go on to read here about man's continued failure. He was just commended by God, but then the, about the last word for Jehu says this, that he did not remove the calf altars set up by King Jeroboam. He did well to remove Baal worship, but he left up these altars devoted to false gods as well. Chapter 10, verse 32 says, In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory because Jehu was not careful to walk in the way of the Lord. So at the end of this section, we've seen God demolishing evil. His righteous are vindicated as holy and just, but we're left longing for a lasting salvation. We're left longing for a forever Savior, an unending Deliverer. We're humbled as God's judgment will soon fall even heavier upon Israel, for in just a few decades, destruction and exile 
await. The longing for this forever Savior is not filled until the true anointed King, Jesus, comes in the flesh. He is a true Jehu who is conquering Satan, death, sin, the principalities and powers in the cosmic realm, and the earth quakes at His death and resurrection as His holiness is vindicated in the sight of all mankind. Jehu's life warns us that Jesus, the living God, will suffer no rival, that Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead, that those outside of Christ stand condemned. And so we who are in Christ go forward with an urgency to make disciples of all nations, that we pray for the saving work of God's grace to be effectual in the lives of those we love and know and come into contact with. The world is filled with violence and injustice. Our only hope is in the God who can make all things right. And as followers of Jesus, we pray fervently against the idols of our own devising, our own bales, and for strength to cast off all that hinders and the sins that so easily entangle. And we love God in gratitude, our true and lasting beloved who silences the empty promises of false lovers, who brings justice to an unjust world, who forgives, who cleanses, and who renews His wayward bride. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are humbled in these passages here. We ask Your blessing upon us as we read and as we've heard. Make us a people who are humble. Make us a people who see the realities of sin and don't try to hide that or diminish it, but invite you to deal with us and with the world around us. So we do humble ourselves before us, asking you to lead and to guide us as we serve you faithfully all of our days. Bless us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.